hunger and craving more throughout the day? A protein-rich breakfast will keep you fuller for longer and help control your hunger. This will also help improve your focus and get you closer to that A. Some good sources of protein are eggs, meats, Greek yogurt, or nuts. Don't want to give up on those delicious carbs just yet? Try adding those eggs and bacon to your morning bagel and keep note of how that added protein makes you feel. Charge up that breakfast and be a healthier turf. Welcome to Revolution on the Air. My name is Michael Brennan. And I'm Chris Walkup. And we are joined today by Sachutra Balanchandra. She is the chair of the Our Revolution Prince George's chapter. Um, she's going to speak with us today on the issue of money and politics, specifically a small donor matching program in Prince George's County. Uh, Satutra is a College Park resident, um, and yeah, thanks for joining us, Satutra. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Mm -hmm. So, before we go into the issue of money and politics and public financing and PG, um, tell us about your background and your politics. So, by training, I'm an astrophysicist. I did research in astronomy for about 20 years. Um, and then I actually got a master's in sustainable development and conservation biology. Um, did some activism on environmental issues, trying to move the state on various um, environmental projects. And then, um, so here I am now in, um, in 2016. Um, I served as a member of um, uh, Bernie Sanders is, I was one of Bernie Sanders' delegates to the Democratic National Convention, and that's what led me to now being in our revolution. Yeah, great. I organized for Bernie Sanders. I think that's how all of us got to know each other a little bit through the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign. Can you talk a little bit more about Bernie's message and what resonated with you specifically? So I... Um, I grew up in India, and I came here as a graduate student um, about 30-some years ago. And uh, I think there are issues of justice, issues of um, uh, consumption, issues of resource use, that kind of overarching issues of, you know, how much should people consume? If you consume too much, what does it leave for people elsewhere? And uh, Bernie Sanders sort of brought that issue within the U.S. context of asking if there is so much consumption and so much money in the top 1% of our society, then what does that do to the other 99%? And he brought it in a way uh, that I think really uh, resonated with people across the country, irrespective of their uh, political backgrounds, because it spoke to their everyday needs. And, of course, when talking about the 1% and uh, how they consume and what they do in our society, Bernie also talked a lot about money in politics. Can you talk a little bit more about how he talked about money in politics and how that's informed the current movement that we're dealing with in Prince George's County? 
So I think it's kind of a real contrast, right, the way um, the, the two campaigns were run. I mean, Hillary Clinton's campaign and Bernie Sanders' campaign for president. They both needed to raise money. They both needed to get the message across to people. Uh, but it was done in very different ways. And I mean, I don't even want to go into all the details we're hearing now <laughs> of uh, what happened at the Democratic uh, National Committee with uh, with how money was channeled. But the, it seems to be like the initial question we ask when somebody gets into a race whether it is for president or for some lower offices, how are you going to raise the money? It's not, I mean, when we talk about viability, we talk about how much money does somebody have. We don't talk about what is your platform? What good is that going to do for people? Where is it going to harm them? We have none of those conversations. And even groups, when they endorse, are simply looking at who has money in order to run. And I think it was just so tremendously refreshing to have Bernie be able to run a campaign and raise over $200 million with, you know, $27. More than Hillary Clinton, if I remember correctly. Uh, I don't remember the numbers, but I know it was, it was more than close. enough. Yeah. She raised more than, than yeah. Hillary through the yeah. primary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, um, keeping that in mind, let's think about um, what happened on Tuesday in terms of Democrats winning offices across the country. I think that, um, you know, I'm hesitant about... The direction in some aspects, like the Ralph Northam winning Virginia and Phil Murphy winning New Jersey, but I think that there's a lot of hope in people like Lee Carter in Virginia. Um, Danica Rome, of course. Yeah, and then so my question for you is, where? How do you think that the progressive movement, you know, I think ignited by Bernie Sanders as we're kind of laying out here, has um, reshaped the way people think about how to run for office and um, you know, politics within the Democratic Party? So that's a really broad question. And uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I, let me see if I can pick and choose from what to, yeah. from what to, uh, to focus on that. I think uh, it's, it is very uh, encouraging to find uh, purple states going blue. But I think for you and for me, I think we're looking for more than going blue because, um, you know, Maryland is a very blue uh, state, for instance, and we have every shape and every, um, you know, nuance of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, politics and uh, incumbency and uh, just, uh, you know, uh, views and visions all encompassed within the Democratic Party. So I think we need to be careful when we say that Democrats won, because as you pointed out, we have to kind of distinguish between the kinds of Democrats and what they stand for. And otherwise, we will just be taking too much uh, joy in the fact that Democrats won without actually analyzing whether the right Democrats won. And that was, I think, the issue that you raised. Right, because I think that when we consider like the new governors of these states and we're talking about climate change as kind of the the backdrop of all the different issues um, that we're talking about i feel like given the way they manage their campaigns and um you know the the fact that i don't think they they have the mandate to challenge the people who might have supported their campaigns and they have to work within this democratic apparatus like they're going to run again in 2021 against probably someone further to the right than the person they ran against now. Hopefully they win again so that 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 person doesn't get into office. And then 2025 is when we're going to have a chance to replace them with someone more progressive. But like the time is not on our side. We can't wait eight years for our governors to be on the right side of the issue of climate change because they're just influenced by the people donating to their campaign. It's not something we can wait on. So yeah, I think that it gets to uh, a larger issue that we so Sachucha so and I were at um, a uh, one of the first Prince George's Green Party events a few weeks ago. Um, we uh, Ajamu Baraka, who was the Green Vice Presidential candidate last year, spoke, and it was centered around the issue of war and militarism. We were talking about it last week with our guest uh, Jack Flowers, um, and uh, the consensus I think of the meeting was and. I, Take, take that with a grain of salt, I guess, because a bunch mm-hmm. of greens, but um, it's undeniable 
the Democratic Party has been absolutely atrocious on foreign policy and the corrupting influence of money and the military industrial complex on their policies, I think is clear to anyone concerned with the issue of militarism. Um, so I know you're also an advocate for the draft Bernie for a People's Party movement and it's something I'm sympathetic to. Um, but what do you think of third party movements? How do they play into the progressive strategy and specifically with our revolution, Prince George's? Right. So again, um, I think uh, war is a big issue. I mean, the United States has 800 bases around the world. Yeah. It's it's just incredible if you add up the amounts that, the, I don't know, the first five or six top uh, spending countries in the world, the U.S. spends more than that in, you know, on its on its um, on the military, and that is mainly in order to maintain this sense of uh, position and power. And it's often in the wrong direction, and often propping the wrong governments at the expense of democracy. So while, I mean, we should not be surprised. I would say that democracy is where it is in the U.S., given what the U.S. is supporting elsewhere. I mean, it all seems seems to go hand in hand. But yes, getting back to the to the uh, to that uh, discussion where Ajamu Baraka was there a few weeks ago, it was really refreshing, right? I mean, there was no quibbling about this, as you find with the Democrats. There is there was no quibbling about the fact that war is bad, that spending money on war is bad. I mean, the Green Party platform is just tremendously clear in what it stands for, as opposed to say the Maryland. Uh, I mean, the the National Demo, Demo, Democratic uh, Party platform, which had so much quibbling and so much back and forth and so much watering down, despite the fact that, as everybody says, it ended up as the most progressive platform ever. But still, there were lots of pushback from the Clinton people on what should actually be on the platform. So, for instance, we don't have a ban on fracking on the Democratic platform, and that was really pushed back by, uh, by the Clinton folks on the platform committee. So I think there are now two waves, and I don't know which is going to win, but I think we really need both these waves going. One is the Dem-Enter wave, where you go into the Democratic Party as a progressive, you join the Central Committee, you, you, know, you push the progressive ideas forward. And that happened, in, for instance, in Massachusetts, which now has a platform which is the most progressive platform that they've ever had or maybe any state has ever had. It's a, you know, it is a result of progressives getting into the Democratic Party and taking over. Uh, I mean, we need, we need to do that. I think we need to do that in blue states. In Maryland, we need to take over the Democratic Party. The Maryland Democratic Party does not have a platform. It has one progressive uh, person on the Central Committee in Maryland who is actually a diversity candidate. Uh, a progressive diversity candidate. I mean, which to me is you know astonishing. As if it's like a token spot to <laughs> well, get out is. to people. Well, it is. It makes it sound like that, yeah. right? And so, and then you come down to even local, more local levels. The Prince George's Central Committee is really um, controlled, in a sense, by the senators who decide who goes in. So, you're the average voter. You know, you know who you want on the top of the ticket. You might even know who, who you want for your council candidate or for your county executive. But by the time it gets down to the Central Committee, nobody has any clue who they want, you know, for judges. For, for school board, there's now much greater interest than there was before, but that's the other issue, right? So for all these down-ballot candidates, the senators put together a ballot. It's called the Democratic Sample Ballot, and they pay for it, and they hand it to you at the polls, and you think, well, I don't know whom to vote for, so I'm just going to vote for these guys. And so there is control over the Central Committee then. And so that has to come through the dem enter process. We have to take over those positions and actually make something happen. Uh, and then there is the third-party issue, which you raised, which is the other idea, is you, know, you, you have a progressive third party pushing from the outside, and maybe it's this confluence of forces that actually decides where we're going and how we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to take our first break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about um, the campaign Our Revolution is focusing on over the next few months, the small donor matching program in Prince George's County. Stay tuned. My ankles, feet clattering in the streets, it's up to my knees. 
Indians scattered on dawn's highway bleeding. Ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. Blood in the streets in the town of New Haven. Blood stains the roofs and the palm trees of Venice. Blood in my love in the terrible summer. Bloody red sun of fantastic L.A. frog by the doors um so now we're back let's talk about the small donor matching program i've been referring to so Satutra, tell our listeners what it is why it's important and maybe a little bit a little bit about the ones in place in montgomery and howard county sure um so say you're running for a county council seat in prince george's county you have to raise somewhere between sixty to eighty to hundred thousand dollars to run an effective campaign, and there are nine council seats in Prince George's. So these nine people raising this amount of money across the county, maybe twice as many if there are challengers. And then there's the executive race for uh, for the county executive, which in the last uh, cycle cost somewhere around one and a half to two million dollars. So where do you think this money comes from and who's contributing and what do they expect in return? I mean, it's very hard to do this raising money $100 at a time or $50 at a time. So that's where the small donor funded election program comes in. It's, uh, it's basically a uh, public financing system, but it's a public financing system with caveats and with tiers that makes it really progressive. The caveat is that you don't just walk off the street and start getting matching funds for whatever money you raise. You have to show that you're a viable candidate and that you're a candidate supported by the community. So there's a certain number of dollars you have to raise from a certain number of people. And once you've reached that threshold, you then become you know, a candidate who is supported by the community and your funds become eligible for uh, matching money. And the way the match is done is to actually empower the small donor, which is what, why, which is where the name comes comes from. So the first, uh, say, twenty-five or fifty dollars that you contribute get gets matched at a higher rate. The next fifty gets matched at a, at a somewhat lower rate, and the final uh, fifty gets matched at a much lower rate. So, for instance, um, and then in uh, you know the program is in fact in play in Montgomery County. This this uh, this election cycle for 2018. And uh, in Montgomery County, the way it works is if you are a council candidate running for a district seat, you have to raise $10,000 from 125 donors. And you they all have to be in-county donations, and you are limited to taking no more than $150 from any one individual. Mm-hmm. So... Um, once you've raised the 10,000, your first 50 gets matched, um, I think it is um, four to one. So the, if you give a candidate $50, a candidate actually has $250 in their pocket. The next 50 is matched three to one, and the last 50 is matched two to one. So that if you give $150 to a candidate, the candidate will have $600. So it makes it, therefore, much easier for grassroots candidates uh, to run for office and uh, um, to be uh, effective in, and I mean, to be able to run an effective campaign. Right. So would the tiers in Prince George's look similar to that, or is that just the, the model we're working with at the moment? So that's the current model in Montgomery County. What we are, what, uh, there is a coalition, the Fair Elections Maryland Coalition, which comprises of good government uh, and, uh, you know, of various national good government organizations. So there's Common Cause, Mary Perg, Every Voice, Democracy Initiative, Progressive Maryland, Our Revolution, 
Uh, and uh, the idea is, of course, to tailor the program to the demographics of the county. Yep. So it is, you know, it is our recommendation that the first $25 be matched at a very high rate in Prince George's, sort of a six-to-one match, uh, perhaps for the council, um, and then, uh, you know, and then bringing that level down. So that really incentivizes. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, everyday folk in Prince George's to contribute and to actually, I mean, realize that their $25 contribution has a significant uh, impact on that campaign because it's like giving $175, which a lot of people can't come up with. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think the takeaway from all of that, the numbers may be hard for people to wrap their head around immediately, but get familiar with them. Um, just being able to donate to a candidate um, say twenty dollars and then or twenty five dollars and they actually end up receiving one hundred seventy five dollar from your grassroots donations. It completely changes the way I think people will will run in uh, on county level elections because if you know you have to run you have to get like developer money or whatever to um, to be able to fund your your campaign like you're not going to be going out to community events you're not going to be going out to the different areas where people who are in most need of you know help help by the county um that they're, they're not going to be getting that voice in in a campaign so i think that it completely reorients the way county politics would operate so um yeah chris got something to say so i was wondering if you could speak to the difference between the uh, like small donor matching programs and grant programs i know at the national level there's a program if you stop taking like political contributions, you can get, I think it's several hundred million dollars from the federal government, from the like National Elections Fund. And I know Connecticut recently established a similar fund where if you raise a certain number of dollars, I think for governor, it's like $250,000 through small donor donations during a primary, you'll get an extra million dollars. And in return, you don't have to raise any more money and i don't think you're even allowed to raise any more money so i'm wondering if you could speak to the impact of those kind of grant programs versus small donor matching programs i don't know if i've looked into it in a great detail but i think the small donor program is uh you know it's it's a real incentive for both the community you know the voter and for the candidate uh to continuously take the message across and also i think for voters to 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 just not just enable them to contribute, but also for them to realize that this is their candidate. Mm -hmm. You know, you you just uh, you are uh, empowered, but you are also given the responsibility of trying to get that candidate into office. And as someone who actually gives a small donation to a candidate. You've, you've got their money, but you've definitely got their vote. And you probably got their neighbor's vote and their, you know, their friend's vote because they're out there saying, I gave this guy 25 bucks. I mean, mm -hmm. it is a very different feeling yeah. than just saying, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. Yeah. There's yeah. a real sense of ownership, yeah. I, I think you could almost call it, over campaigns when you donate to that, to that extent and right. see those donations multiply. Right. It's also uh, ownership of the message. Yeah. And it keeps the candidate honest with the, you know, I mean, they, they don't have to be swayed by anything. They just have to think about who contributed to my campaign, mm -hmm. and they'll know which way to vote when time comes to move on so issues. So some people might be hearing $25 becomes $175. That's $150 of taxpayer money <laughs> that's going to political candidates. How can we afford this? And right. I think you've called this an investment in democracy. Could you speak a little bit more sure. to, to the value of that investment? Sure. I mean, I think it's worth looking at the numbers. So uh, the cost for Prince George's County for a small donor program will be somewhere of the order of one and a half million dollars. And you get that number by saying what have candidates spent in the past for winning races, how many candidates are likely to run and sort of doing the math around that. So uh, it's, it's worth saying. So, you know, you can I mean, one and a half million dollars sounds like a lot of money, even when you say that the county budget is $3.8 billion. But putting it down into <laughs> numbers that we can actually understand, let's say you have a household uh, that has a household income of $50,000. It's asking that household, can you spare $20 for something that you think is a high priority uh, item for your, for, your, for your family? And I think most people will say that if it's an item that we consider a high priority, yes, of course, we can find $20 to pay. 
right? I mean, irrespective of the fact that you have to pay for your house and your car and, you know, you have food and, I mean, you have to pay for all those basic things which take up the bulk of your money. So I think when politicians say we can't afford it, I think if we put it in context, it becomes clear that it's not the question of not being able to afford it. It's the question of not being able to put this as a, as a high enough priority mm. on your agenda. Yeah. And then we have to ask the question, why is it not a high enough priority item on your agenda? Because it is on our agenda, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, for, so, for instance, uh, there were two at-large seats that were voted on in Prince George's County in the last election cycle. And when those seats were proposed and then that question was put on the ballot, many council members said, that it's so I mean the the office of audits and inspection said it would cost a million dollars to fund those two seats and various council members said oh but that's just a drop in the bucket which it is right it's twenty dollars relative to fifty thousand I said it is a drop in the bucket so the question is if that's a drop in the bucket then why is it that you're finding it so hard to fund public finance campaigns so I was also hoping that we could take this from kind of the theory into the practice. We've seen successful programs, I would argue, implemented in Montgomery County and Howard County. I'm actually from Montgomery County, and I've seen the impact that this is having. There are over 30 candidates running for the at-large county council seats, for instance. Could you talk a little bit about your impression of the changes these public uh, donor matching programs have brought to these counties. Right. So the numbers I've seen are that there are about 40 candidates running for the at-large and the district seats and the county executive seats. And of those, about 30 have said they're interested in using public financing. So, you know, you have to open a clean account when you're running for public financing. You can't mix money you had previously. It's a it's a it's a very clean system that's set up by the by the state. You, I mean, you raise money, and then wh- when you win the election or you lose the election, any money you have left in your account goes goes back to the county. Mm. So what I've seen is when candidates who are not using public financing advertise their fundraisers on, say, a Facebook page, and they have donation limits, like come to my fundraiser, thousand dollar top category, five hundred dollar next category, goes down to a hundred. Um, People are asking the question, why are you not running a publicly financed campaign? Right. You know, and I think it is amazing to me how quickly that conversation has caught on and how people are in fact questioning candidates who are not on public financing so that it becomes a liability for you if you're running and you're not publicly financed. Right. I think that's the kind of one of the big keys to this, at least, um, that um, it creates, I think, a political culture where, you know, you expect someone to run on it, and then when they're not, you question why instead of, you know, somewhat the assumption being that they're going to take money and then that's just the way it is, you know. Um, so I think that that is probably the the cultural shift that we kind of need in our community in Prince George's County in order to, you know, then people will, within Prince George's who are going to be voting in the 4th and 5th uh, congressional districts, you know, they'll start asking the different levels of office that's not on the county level as to the things about um, public financing there. And I think that's part of the, the groundswell that we're going to need. Um, but that, that's all the time we have for this interview today. Thank you for joining us, Achucha. Thank you, Michael. So we're going to take another break, um, some more doors. And then when we come back, we're going to be talking with this, uh, the president of Students for Justice in Palestine, Miranda Milo. I want to tell you about Texas Radio and the Big B. Comes out of the Virginia swamps, cool and slow with money and precision. And the backbeat narrow and hard to master. Some call it heavenly and it's brilliant. Others mean and rueful of the Western dream. I have gathered together in this thin route. We have constructed pyramids in honor of our escaping. This is the land where the pharaoh died.
Echoes in the forest, brightly feathered. They are saying, forget the night. Live with us in forests of azure. Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stone, immaculate. We are back. Um, we now turn to our second guest today, Miranda Malilo. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Um, Miranda is a Palestinian-American. Uh, she is a environmental science and policy major junior at the University of Maryland. She is president of the campus group Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, thanks for coming on our show. Thank you. Um, so let's start with your background for our listeners. Um, what, what is you and your family's history related to Palestine? Um, how, how has it influenced you as a student activist? Um, well, yeah, so my mom is Palestinian. Um, she and her family had to leave uh, in the war of 1948. So they, she basically grew up as a refugee in Egypt. Um, and so, yeah, my, my mom's side of the family is Palestinian. So I grew up learning a lot about the issue, being able to talk about it with them. Um, on my dad's side, he's from Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. and so that has a whole other complicated history and another struggle as well. But one thing that's been really interesting is growing up and being able to connect the two struggles and also connecting it with a lot of other um, historical strug struggles and social movements in the past and just seeing the connections and kind of seeing how history repeats itself as well. Um, and so then that just made it easy coming to college, trying to put all of my energy into activism and social justice seemed like the natural thing to do. Mm -hmm. So talk about SJP, the Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, what is your mission at UMD? Obviously, as a student organization in the United States, um, the scope of this particular issue is international, and it's hard to wrap uh, your head around like from the grassroots. So what does SJP do in our community to promote Palestinian rights? Yeah, so SJP is actually um, it's a global 
organization, but it was founded nationally in the U.S., um, so we have a national branch, and this is the University of Maryland branch, um, and so basically the whole concept of SJP in general is focusing on the human rights of Palestinians, because right now there is very unequal living conditions between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, there's an apartheid system going on, which I'll get into later, but basically SJP's entire mission is that there can't be any peace until there's justice, because until there is equality in a level playing field, the solution won't be there, um, and it comes with with equality. Um, and so we focus on promoting the human rights of Palestinians through cultural events, um, educational events like teach-ins, we bring in speakers, and also through advocacy. So um, sort of lobbying our administration and our SGA to invest in companies that are socially responsible and don't contribute to the human rights violations of Palesti Palestinians, which we'll talk about later as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are our main goals as an organization. So, um one of your campaigns this semester uh, is to push a BDS boycott, divest sanctions bill through the SGA, um, where the university endowment would divest from any companies that financially support Israel, if I'm getting that right. Um, yeah. yeah, it's basically it would be um, divesting from any companies that contribute to or profit off of the Israeli occupation. Okay. So give our listeners your thoughts on this as... Um, a tactic within the larger strategy of peace between Israel and Palestine, as in um, how does divesting from these companies, um, you know, promote Palestinian human rights and then why, why you th and just why you think the university should divest? Sure. Yeah. I think one thing that's important is that a lot of time people have conversations about BDS without even fully understanding what it is or even fully understanding the history of the region itself. So I think I'll just like bring it back and sort of talk about the history and then how that plays into what we're dealing with today. Sure. Um, so prior to 1948, um, there's a country called Palestine, sovereign country um, that was an English protectorate. Um, and so, yeah, not many people know, but um, uh, when people were deciding where they were going to create the country of Israel. Um, they were deciding between Palestine, Uganda, and Argentina. Uh, yeah, and so finally they decided on Palestine, and prior to 1948 there were a lot of Jewish settlers to the region, which wasn't a big issue at the time, um, but it was in 1948 when they declared Israel as a state and a Jewish-only state that there became an issue. So because Palestinians are not Jewish, um, primarily, that left them with two options. They would either need to be expelled as refugees or ethnically cleansed. And so that's exactly what happened in 1948. Um, there were 700,000 Palestinian refugees, 13,000 Palestinians died, and 500 villages were destroyed. Um, and so you still see the effects of that today. Um, one in three refugees in the entire world is Palestinian. Like I mentioned, um, my mom's family were refugees from the war of 1948, and uh, Palestinians that are living as refugees now are not like fully assimilated into other societies. They live in refugee camps all over the Middle East, um, and the living conditions are pretty horrible. And so then if you look at the <clears throat> Israel society right now, um, they have a military occupation over what's called the West Bank and Gaza. So a lot of Palestinians were pushed into the West Bank and Gaza, and there is a literal separation wall that separates Palestinian territories from Israel proper. And there's also, um, I think, something like 300 checkpoints scattered throughout the West Bank. And so basically Israel controls everything that goes in between these, this wall. So they control who goes in and who goes out. Most people in Gaza have never actually left. They control all the food that goes in there, water. They control what happens to Palestinians' tax dollars. They control whether or not Palestinians can go to school. Um, the UN said that Gaza is going to be unlivable by the year 2019 just because of the limited resources and the sheer number of people. Um, and Israel also has a lot of apartheid laws in place as well. So they have certain restrictions on how many Palestinians can go to university. Um, they have separate railroads and trains, some for Israelis, some for Palestinians. Um, there are certain jobs that Palestinians can't have. Um, they have less power in voting as well. So it's really just an unequal apartheid-like situation. Can you, can you elaborate on what you mean by apartheid? Because I know that that specific word is a point of contention for a lot of people. Yeah, um, and because a lot of the time when people think about apartheid, they only think about South Africa. But apartheid means um, one group having dominance over another group, and it's split based on ethnicity. 
essentially. And so in Israel, um, Jewish Israelis have more rights than Palestinians and even Arab Israelis in the eyes of the law. For example, there's like really huge problems with mass incarceration. So like the West Bank is under military law and Israel proper is not. So in the West Bank, throwing a stone is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Um, 70% of Palestinians have been incarcerated and 80% of Israeli prisons are filled with uh, either Palestinians or African Jews. So that's sort of what I mean by an apartheid system. And can you talk about the specific goals of the BDS movement? Right. I know there are, like I've looked at the website a little bit, and there are three main goals yes. that are being striven, you are striving for. <laughs> can you talk about those three goals? Yeah, absolutely. So this is another thing is like people think, oh, BDS is so complicated, BDS is this. No, there are actually, like you said, three main goals. The first one is an end to the military occupation. So that's why I talked about earlier, the wall and the checkpoints. Um, a second is equality between Arabs and Israelis under the eyes of the law, socially and economically. For example, um, uh, the unemployment rate in Gaza is 45% and in Israel it's 6 So that's not equality um, economically. And then the third one is right of return for Palestinians. So like I mentioned before, a lot of Palestinians were refugees in 48 and are still living as refugees now. And so that would allow for Palestinians to return to their homes in Palestine and Israel and um, live equally there. So those are the three main goals. So this is so here's my point of contention with the BDS movement. And I haven't really spoken with anyone about this, so I'm happy that you can be here because I think any uh, I'll say decent human being should e easily be able to agree to one or two. Like if you stand against Trump and the idea of like a wall separating the United States and Mexico, like it makes no sense to have a wall dividing Israel and Palestine. Obviously human rights are fundamental. The right to return, though, is what I understand is one of the more contentious propositions because, as I understand, there are people currently living in land that Palestinian refugees claim as, as theirs. So how can – what the third goal of the BDS movement, what would happen if Israel said, yes, the Palestinian refugees can come back? Does that mean Israelis are getting kicked out of their homes? Does it mean – uh, can, can you explain more about it? Because I think a lot of people, including myself, have Israeli friends, support some of the things at least that Israel's doing. What would this look like if number three, specifically the more contentious one, was implemented? Yeah, I mean, when Israel was first created, that meant Palestinians having to be kicked out of their homes to make room for Israelis. And so to then turn around and be like, well, we're going to kick you out of your home now is not what anybody wants to do. So really, it just means that Palestinians would be able to return back to that land, not necessarily okay. like the city they had to leave from or their house. Um, I don't think there's any arguments that that country is like too small to support an influx of refugees. Um, if the resources were being fairly distributed, if all of the these refugees were going back to Gaza, now that's certainly not possible. But if we were able to put an end to the occupation and all be living equally on one land, um, and also, just to put, point out, SJP doesn't advocate for either a two-state or one-state solution, because like I mentioned before, mm -hmm. we can't even be talking about that until we're starting these negotiations from an equal playing field, and right now that's not what's going on. And also, we don't have the power to decide whether, like, we're not Netanyahu and Arafat, like, we don't mm -hmm. have the, we can't decide whether or not it's going to be one or two-state, but we can say that we're going to enter into these negotiations from an equal playing field. And so, Going back to the, the right of return, it would just be for Palestinians to return to that area and be equal under the eyes of the law. And then BDS itself is pushing or is pushing Israel to actually enter into negotiations not from a power a place of complete superiority and dominance because we've been having negotiations for the past 70 years and nothing has happened because Israel doesn't want anything to change because they're in the position of power. So if we say we're not going to continue to financially support you unless you actually take human rights seriously, that's what the point of BDS is. And it's uh, modeled very closely after the South African divestment movement as well. Um, there's even a quote from Nelson Mandela, like he said, um, Israel reminds me of apartheid South Africa, except for it may be a little bit worse. Um, and so this campaign has been very much inspired by the South African divestment movement and hoping for very similar outcomes as well. So let's let's take a step back to the SGA bill that right. we're talking about. So um, it's, it's going to be voted on on Wednesday, correct? Um, well, so the committee is hearing it on Tuesday. On Tuesday. So... Um, there's a possibility that it'll die in committee, but okay. if it doesn't, then it'll be voted on Wednesday. Okay. So I, I want to give a quick rundown 
of at least my take on um, the university and its endowment and um, its relationship with its students. Because I think this issue of Israeli divestment um, shines a light on this larger issue because, you know, you can look at um, all the websites and communications from the administration and it claims to represent values of social justice and diversity and all that. But I think we need to think for a second about the actions of the university system because actions speak louder than words. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so the the university has a fund called the endowment that's a bit more than a billion dollars and it's built over it's built up over the years through private donations, um, state funds, among other things. And the fund is managed by a private firm called the University of Maryland Foundation whose mission is to maximize return on investments using this endowment fund. So in a standard model that anyone who has like a pension or a 401k or any of that type of thing, their, their goal is to maximize the profit of this fund. Um, and then that profit that they make goes back into the university's operating budget. And then we have more money to spend on all the things into running a school that go into running a school. So the problem that comes up, I think, um, when you have a university that's supposed to be kind of like a pillar of society in terms of advancing, um, you know, that you, you're training the next generation to become the next, the tomorrow's leaders and all those sorts of things and the, the values that need to go into that, the mac- maximizing an endowment's profits directly contradict those values because like when you, for example, when you invest in a company that supports Israeli occupation, um, you know, it, it goes against um, those, like maybe some of those issues of diversity or social justice or those sorts of things. But that may be a little far, far removed for people. So consider um, some of the most profitable companies to be invested in right now with the Trump administration are fossil fuel companies. So this incentivizes investors to continue supporting them while not considering the social and environmental impact of the profits that they're making off of these companies. And this is why we have divestment movements on college campuses across the country. Um, You know, you yourself are environmental science and policy major. How many students go to UMD studying environmental science, sustainability, policy, and being trained to become this generation that's supposed to take on the issue of the 21st century? And then the university turns around and invest the money that they use to run the school in fossil fuel companies and fuel this this crisis. So I think that there's a disconnect between how the money's being used and um, the values of the school. So on this topic, um, speak to how Israeli divestment is part of a larger movement on socially socially responsible investing as connected with climate change or prisons or anything like that. Yeah, um, that's a very good point that you made. And also, just to clarify uh, once again, because this is also a big misconception, um, so the BDS campaign is to divest from companies that profit from or contribute to the Israeli occupation. So um, that's something I wanted to clarify. And yeah, like you said, um, we've had a lot of sketchy investments like now and in the past. So in 89, there was actually a student movement to divest from the South African apartheid. Um, And that was also very heavily contested and like was a very big struggle in the fight. Um, But it ended up happening. And so there's the fossil fuel divestment campaign as well. There's also a campaign to divest from the private prison industry. Most of our furniture comes from private prisons, as I'm sure you guys know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of this is part of a larger socially responsible investment campaign. And more and more schools are actually doing this. And there's starting to become a screen for investors that kind of screens out these companies that don't necessarily align with our values. And that's something that more and more schools are pushing. And I I think that that is something SJP, I mean, we definitely get behind that. Um, And the reason that we are focusing specifically on the Israeli occupation is because that's where most of our research is and most of our expertise. But I think that all of those things go hand in hand in terms of their level of importance and their level of relevance to us as students. So um, on this, so the, as I understand the, the main, um, the main campaign at the moment for SJP is this SGA bill, right? Yeah. So how does pushing like i expect going into the sga given its makeup and people who are going to be voting on it i don't i don't really expect it to win at least this time around maybe mm-hmm. in the future but um how does advocating and organizing around an sga bill advance the mission of sjp on this campus 
Right, yeah, I mean, we don't completely expect it to win either just because of the politics of the SGA right now yeah. and also just because of how rarely divestment bills pass on the first try, <laughs> which is never. Um, but I think that just the organizing that's been going behind this has been extremely important. So um, we've been having a lot of events about BDS, trying to normalize it, trying to clear up any misconceptions that there are. Um, I have been me meeting with a lot of legislators one-on-one, -on -one, and I've sort of been understanding what the SGA is like in terms of like politics and cliques, and it seems, I don't know, it seems like a pretty crazy system, but it, I think it pretty accurately mirrors the politics of what's going on <laughs> in Congress, so that's interesting. Um, and I think that just sort of having this conversation, I mean, the past week there have been like five articles about BDS and the Diamondback, and I expect there to be more as well, um, because it's so easy to just sort of push this behind us because the occupation is not something that we necessarily see. But when you're confronted with it and you're forced to discuss it and learn more about it, that's when you start to kind of grow as a person and start to actually understand this campaign. And it's really easy to be like, BDS is this, and just sort of um, attach to all of these emotional rhetorics that aren't actually based in fact. But then when somebody is arguing fact to you and you have to sit there and listen to it I think that's really important um, and we hope that you know all the work that we've put into this campaign this semester we will continue to use and gain from that in the future um, we have our petition written now all of the emails we've sent to legislators the bill is written we've made a lot of connections with nonprofits in DC and around the world and um, just sort of that those lessons that we've learned is very valuable right. So even if the BDS bill doesn't pass, what can people do individually to divest their own pocketbooks from organizations that support the occupation of Palestine? Like, what or so? What are some of the organizations that, that profit be, off that of profit the, off? Is the clarification for contribute that? to yeah. and profit off? Contri of. okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's both of those things. Um, because I, I don't. Yeah, it's both. Um. <laughs> Individually, so we all can, we all definitely um, put money into these companies by accident. Um, like for example, H and M, Sabra. Um, I'm sure those are all companies. Oh, I know. I love hummus. I know. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, but. Yeah, so I think that just sort of trying to be more mindful and where you're putting your money specifically. There is an app for that, actually. Mm. <laughs> I don't remember what it's called, but I'm sure if you search it up, you can find it. Um, and like our individual uh, pockets don't make nearly as much of a contribution as like the university, especially right. like since we're a Big Ten school and we have, you know, a lot of money invested. Um, but I think just being mindful of it and then sort of if like these companies start to take a hit, um, from a lot of people deciding they're going to put their money elsewhere, that's also beneficial. But, I mean, I think it's always better to focus on the larger institutions. And speaking about some of these macro-level changes, there have, there's not only a movement to push for BDS in the United States and across college campuses, but also a massive pushback. Yep. One of our own senators, Senator Ben Cardin, uh, co-sponsored or maybe even sponsored a bill in the United States Senate that would make it illegal, as I understand, to push for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this anti-BDS movement and the impact that you think it's having? Is it matched with BDS in terms of strength resources? Is you know, one more powerful than the grassroots versus like grass tops? What, what do these two movements look like when they go head to head? Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, this could definitely have been predicted and everyone saw this coming just because all social movements have pushbacks. So, like, um, Nelson Mandela and his party, the African National Congress, are actually, were written down on the terrorist watch list of the U.S. When Nelson Mandela tried to come into the U.S., he was not allowed. But then when he passed away, all of our flags were at half-mast for him. So it just <laughs> shows how, like, in 20 years even, just so much can change. Um, and there's always going to be pushbacks against social movements. Think about all the people that were furious with Nelson Mandela, uh, Rosa Parks, sorry, um, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and a lot of people that we regard as heroes in the U.S. now. Um, all of these anti-BDS bills are 100% unconstitutional and they're not going to be upheld. So in that way, I think that we are stronger and that we are working off of our First Amendment right to boycott and that's completely legal and they're taking a huge step in trying to ban this. Um, Hogan's executive order that's anti-BDS, the ACLU is already on that in terms of suing them. Um, Texas even 
uh, started only giving hurricane relief aid to people that condemned publicly BDS. So that's just completely insane because I think we talk so much about freedom of speech and the First Amendment, and yet sometimes this country only shows who they're going to give this freedom of speech priority to. And a lot of the time it's not Palestinian activists because of how much money there is supporting Israel right now, and that is another reason to push for BDS even more. And that's also another reason that the SGA should be taking a strong stance in favor of BDS, also because President Lowe has come out against BDS as well. And a lot of people were saying, like, well, can we even pass an SGA bill if, like, Hogan has made it illegal? Yes, we absolutely can, because these SGA bills are not binding, not legally binding at all. It's pretty much symbolic. Um, (laughs) And so now is a better time than ever to take a strong stance in favor of BDS and against um, squashing our First Amendment rights to boycott companies that we don't agree with. All right, we're going to have to end it there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it goes by very quickly. Yeah. Um, thank you for joining us, Miranda. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been Revolution on the Air. Um, yeah, check us out on social media. We're available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Tune in next week. Thanks. So now I'm going back again. I got to get to her somehow. People we used to know, they're an illusion to me now. Some are mathematicians, some are carpenters' wives. Don't know how it all got started. I don't know what they do with their lives. But me, I'm still on the road, ahead for another joint. We always did feel the same, we just saw it from a different point.